There we go. Okay, so a few years ago, I actually told uh, some of you who were at our fall retreat a few years ago, I told you this story, or at least uh, part of the story. Uh, but I'm going to share this again anyway. I want to tell you guys tonight about a dude that I went to school with at Ozark Christian College named Sergeant Reynolds. And Sergeant Reynolds uh, was one of the scariest human beings that I have ever met. Uh, this is how scary Sergeant Reynolds is, by the way. That's not his actual name, okay? I am using a false name on the off chance that Sergeant Reynolds listens to this recording and discovers where I live and kills me in my sleep, okay? That is how nervous I, I am about this individual. He was a guy who was going to Ozark with us, and he was, uh, he was several years older. He was probably late 20s, early 30s. He was married, I think. Uh, he was in the military, hence the Sergeant Riddle saying that wasn't just a nickname or his first name, Sergeant, anything like that, okay? So uh, he was in the military, and he was training there to be a chaplain, but he was a genuinely, like literally for me, one of the scariest people I knew. And the reason was not because Sergeant Reynolds was like particularly mean or anything like that. It wasn't that he seems to be super angry or volatile or anything like that. It was just that he was one of the most serious and intense individuals that I've ever met. Uh, one of those guys who just always has a stern look on his face and never smiles. Uh, on the rare occasions when he does smile, like you, you so never see him smile, I don't know if you know anybody like this, like they so never smile that when they do, it's almost creepier. It's like, why, what's going on in your head right now that's making you smile? Are you thinking about snapping my neck off or something like that? Okay, I add on top of this, by the way, this is a story for another time, that he did almost kill me in Revelation class, all right? I'll tell you that story some other time if you weren't there for a retreat. But this was just, he was just one of those guys that you could never quite tell what he was thinking. Uh, he just always, to me, seemed like the kind of guy who could snap and do something crazy at any moment. So I was always a little bit nervous around him. And I was not the only one, okay? Uh, there were a number of people who were intimidated by him, including the lead minister of this church, Jim Johnson, uh, who was at the time a professor at Ozark. And he, was, he, he preached or he taught a number of different classes. One of them was homiletics, which is basically just preaching class. And, and in preaching class, it's just like you would like a speech class. There comes a point in the semester where everybody gets up and they kind of share, they preach a sermon, right? And there was this one particular sermon um, or where, where Jim was overseeing the class and he was having the students get up and, and do their sermons. And Sergeant Rhodes was in his class and was supposed to give a sermon on this one day. I think it was in Daniel, if I remember right. But Jim says that Sergeant Rhodes got up, uh, up to the podium, but he did not just walk up with a Bible. He walked up with three other things. He walked up with a cinder block, a white towel, and a meat cleaver. Okay? Like one of those giant, like, butcher knife things, right? And he walks up and he sets the, sets the cinder block down, and then he puts the towel on top of that, and then he puts the meat cleaver on top of the towel. And then he begins to preach. And Jim's job, as you know, the professor here, is to evaluate the sermons and to be able to give feedback and help those things. But Jim will tell you to this day that he probably gave like the least amount of worst feedback ever because he could not pay attention to the sermon. The entire time he just sat there going, oh my gosh, what is he going to do with that meat cleaver? Just trying to figure out, like, what, why does he got that up there? What is he going to, oh no, I think, I think he's going to chop his hand off as some sort of weird sermon illustration here. And he sat there thinking, I wonder how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it. And he started thinking, no, he's going to kill me with that meat cleaver. 
he's going to come across the back of the classroom as some sort of like put your sin to death metaphor and he's going to chop me up in front of this class. And so Jim sat there like looking kind of eyeing him and the exit and you know trying to gauge how long it would take him to bail if Sergeant Rose started coming towards him with the cleaver. Um, and then all of a sudden as he's thinking through the stuff, Sergeant Rose just like packs his Bible up. And he's like done, right? And he picks up the meat cleaver and the towel and the cinder block and he goes and just sits down. Never touches the meat cleaver during the summer, never even like references it. Which to me is worse, is like <laughs> way creepier, right? And, and Jim gets up and he like, they, they kind of do the little evaluations and Jim's like, you know, hey, so good introduction. Jim didn't know if he even had an introduction. He's just saying stuff. Good introduction and a great job with the text. One question, uh, what was the deal with like the meat cleaver thing and the towel and the block? What's the deal with that? And Sergeant Rhodes said to him, I kid you not, straight face, not a smile on his face. Oh, it just makes me feel more comfortable to have that up with me. <laughs> Which again is worse, right? It's like so scary and so absolutely random. And, and one of those things where it totally got people's attention, but they had no, like, what in the world was the deal with that? Why, what was even the point of all that? Why have that up there at all? Tonight, we're gonna talk about a story that will grab people's attention. It's, it's, it's an impressive one, it's a flashy one. But I admit that for many years of my life, um, I thought kind of about that, like Jim did about that meat cleaver. Is, it was one of those events, one of those stories in Jesus' life where I just went, what was the point of that? It all seems there's so much that goes on, and yet it seems so random, so out of nowhere. And as soon as it begins, it then just kind of stops, and life goes back to normal. What is the point of the transfiguration? We started last semester walking through basically what, what we're trying to do is see Jesus through the eyes of one of his closest followers, one of his closest companions, and that is the Apostle Peter. And so we, we spent our semester doing two things. One is looking at gospel stories in which Peter is interacting with Jesus, and then two, walking through the book of 1 Peter. And we just took this little break going through Ecclesiastes to start this semester. And now we're going to jump back in and we're going to look at some more gospel stories where Peter is interacting with Jesus. And then we're going to close out the semester in 2 Peter as we get towards the end of those things. We were in at one point, if you were here in like September, we were in Mark 8. At the very end of Mark 8, and we spent just a little time talking about that. Mark 8 is considered by scholars to be the hinge point of the gospel of Mark. It's, it sits right at the mid, midway section. There's 16 chapters in Mark. And during the first eight chapters, everything that Mark is doing is he is compiling evidence to show to his readers that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. That he is the promised one of God who, who has been anointed and chosen and brought to earth to do God's work. And so he's, he, he compiles all these stories of the miracles that Jesus does and the teachings that Jesus has. And then he has Jesus doing these things that no one else can do except for God, like forgive sin or, or like casting out demons by his own authority and in his own name. And so he builds all this up and throughout it, people keep asking, who is this? Who is this? What is this about? And then this kind of climactic scene takes place at the end of Mark chapter 8, where Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they start listing off, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say uh, one of the prophets, and some say, and then Jesus goes, but, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward and he says, 
you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the very Son of God. And Jesus says, well, actually he says, which we'll talk about this in a bit, but he says, keep that a secret. Don't tell anybody, but yes. And then, as soon as Peter says this statement, and as soon as Jesus kind of confirms with this big culminating moment, Jesus says these words in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and rise after three days. This is the shocking twist in the story of Jesus. This is the shocking twist in Mark's gospel that no one would have seen coming. And, and the, actually, the Mark's gospel can be summed up in two halves. Chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is the Messiah. Chapters 9 through 16, the Messiah will suffer. And that's the part that, like I said, no one would see coming, a, a suffering Messiah, a rejected Messiah, because the very point of the Messiah is that he's supposed to be from God, and therefore God's people are all supposed to recognize him and receive him, and he's not supposed to suffer, he's not supposed to die, he's supposed to come save all of God's people by conquering their enemies, by raising up an army, and by being victorious, and, and slaughtering his foes, and reigning on a throne forever, and so this idea that the Messiah must suffer, that's one that his followers have a hard time swallowing. In fact, Peter steps forward to rebuke him in that moment and goes, hey, 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 Jesus, listen. Uh, I'm not sure if you know this, that's not how this story goes. It's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And, and Jesus takes him aside and rebukes him and then stands up in front of all his disciples in the crowd and says, hey, by the way, anyone who wants to follow me must be ready to take up their cross as well. Must be ready to suffer and deny themselves as well. And this is the point where there would be some disciples who would go, I don't know if that's what I signed up for. As a matter of fact, I know that this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for a Messiah that was going to win. I signed up for a, a Messiah that was going to lead us on to, to greater and greater things and greater and greater glory. And if this isn't that kind of Messiah, this isn't really the Messiah. This isn't the one I want to back. That's where some of the people could find themselves going. That's where some of his own disciples uh, might find themselves uh, wondering. It could be easy for many to doubt that maybe he's not the one. But then right after this little conversation, Jesus says these words, and this is what starts our text tonight. Mark 9, verse 1. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And this is a puzzling statement. And even today, like not just for the people then, even today, scholars debate exactly what Jesus means and what he's referring to when he says these things. Now, we'll, we'll get to it a little bit and, and talk about, I think, based on kind of what Mark is doing, I think that at least in part what Jesus is describing is this incredible event that he's about to describe. Here's what Mark says next in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Now, 
we're not going to, uh, uh, what I want to do right here is just kind of walk step by step through what happens. We'll unpack the significance of it a little bit more in the second half of tonight, but just kind of briefly talk about what's happening here. First Mark says, after six days. So he says these things then after six days. That, that ought to kind of perk up your attention a little bit if you read Mark very much because Mark never gives specific times. He almost always just says immediately or after this, or then there's only two times in the Gospel of Mark where he gives a specific time like this after six days. I think that's significant, and we'll talk about it in a bit. But Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, the inner three, Peter, James, and John, and he goes up a high mountain. We, we don't know exactly which mountain, but he's in the far northern regions of Israel, uh, and uh, like up above even Galilee, where Caesarea Philippi is. And so there's a few different mountains in that area where he could go up to. We're not exactly sure where, but we do know that when he goes up there, his appearance begins to change in front of them. It says he's transfigured. The word is like metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis from, that he, he begins to transform and change in front of them, and he begins to glow, and his clothes begin to light up in, in this kind of uh, like dazzling, lightning type uh, look kind of shining from them. And Mark doesn't say this, but Matthew, when he tells this story, he throws in actually that also it wasn't just his clothes, but his face begins to shine like the sun, Matthew says while he's up there. And then it begins to get even crazier than that in verse 4. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Elijah and Moses show up, they're talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. So Elijah and Moses are these two very prominent figures from the Jewish scriptures, from the Old Testament, two of the biggest figures in the scriptures. And they show up here on the mountain alongside of Jesus and his three disciples, and they begin to talk with Jesus. And here's again where one of the other gospel writers fills in more details. Mark doesn't say what they're talking about, but Luke tells us. Luke says that they, they are talking about what he's about to do in Jerusalem. Specifically, what he means by that is Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And so they gather together and they're talking about these things. And in the middle of this, Peter kind of butts in and says, Hey, uh, we should build some tents for you guys and the three of you, and we could all just hang out up here. Right? And, and this is really interesting. This is one of those kind of fun moments. Uh, a quick side note. Church tradition tells us that Mark is the writer of this gospel. John Mark writes the gospel, but he writes this under the instruction and teaching of the Apostle Peter. So when you read through the gospel of Mark, you're actually kind of getting uh, Peter's perspective and his own kind of experience as he describes those things. And so both Matthew and Luke, they talk about Peter saying these things, but they don't give an explanation why. Mark's gospel does here in verse 6, where it says, uh, he said this because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. And I love that because I can like literally picture Mark like writing these things and Peter's like, and then I said we should build these tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And Mark's like, wait, what? Why'd you do that? And Peter's like, I don't know, man. I was freaking out. And so Mark's like, I'm gonna write that down actually. Uh, and so, like, he's like, you should have been, if you would have been there, you would have said crazy things, too. I was, it was crazy. I didn't know what was happening, right? And then it kind of goes on from there uh, into something is even more when they think, man, this cannot be dialed up anymore. This cannot get any more intense. We see in verse 7, a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, 
listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So this cloud envelops them up there, and from the cloud, God begins to speak. This is known in the scriptures as a theophany, a a special appearance of God himself, Uh, whether that be like right in front of or some sort of vision, some sort of thing where he makes his presence known in an extraordinary way, and then like that, it's over. And Peter and James and John look up, and now it's just them and Jesus, and everything has gone back to what it was. They just witnessed one of the craziest things, probably the craziest thing they have ever seen. And you know that they cannot wait to get down the mountain and tell the others what they've seen, but Jesus says they can't. It's what we read in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Now, a couple questions there. First of all, why can't they tell anyone? Why, after this incredible moment, are they not allowed to tell anyone what just happened until after Jesus raised from the dead? And second, how are they so confused about what Jesus is saying to them? He's already talked to them once about this, but he says, wait until after I raise from the dead. And they're like, what? Um, uh, I think we'll we'll tackle that second question first. Jesus often speaks to his uh, disciples in like parables and metaphors. And sometimes it seems like they are so behind, like so two steps behind and so like caught off guard that they get mixed up. That So when Jesus starts speaking to them like plainly and he says, wait until after I raise from the dead, they all whisper to each other, I wonder what he means by raise from the dead. Okay. Uh, they're like, they, they don't know what to do with it, right? They, they're not sure what he even means. But I think that this is actually a very interesting statement that is taking place here, that they do not understand this because they were not expecting it. And that really is key to being able to understand the gospel and what is actually going on. They had no expectation of him resurrecting. I was in the student union uh, just a couple weeks ago, and I got in a conversation with this uh, student who came up, and we were talking about God, and, and he was uh, telling me that he's agnostic, that he used to be a Christian, but he's kind of left all of that. And, and as we're talking and kind of going back and forth, he asks me, let, let me just ask you, why are you a Christian? Why do you still believe this stuff? And I, I told him, actually, there's a number of different reasons and shared some, but I said, truthfully, like, probably the biggest for me is the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That, that when we look back at all the evidence surrounding that event, we know something crazy happened. Like even people, even scholars who aren't Christians will tell you something crazy must have happened for the church to start in the way that it did and for these people to begin worshiping this man. But, uh, but they don't know what it is. And, and I think all the evidence points to this. And he goes, I just can't get there. He said, that's, that's crazy. Like, like even, even if all the other theories don't add up, how can you find yourself believing that a man actually rose from the dead? Aren't there better explanations? He said, like, like, like that the disciples stole the body, or, or maybe they just saw someone um, that looked like Jesus and decided that must have been him, or maybe he had like a twin brother or something like that that was kind of hidden away, and then he came out, and, and, and then they saw him, and they thought that that was Jesus. And, and, and we just kind of talked. I wasn't really thinking too much about it later. It wasn't until later that I was like, wait a second, hang on. So like I'm supposed to believe that like Mary and Joseph had twins, 
and then pulled off a 33-year-long prank on everybody, <laughs> hiding one of the twins away for a long time until they could like bring it, because they're like, we know this one's probably gonna die in 33 years, and then we'll pull out this twin and everyone will think that he's back alive, right? Um, uh, it's, here's the thing that, that's really important to know. Those theories, those ideas, well, maybe the disciples made it up. Well, maybe they were just so hoping that he would that they see somebody and they think it is. All of those are based on a faulty assumption that the Jewish people expected the Messiah to resurrect. They're all assuming, well, they know the Messiah is supposed to die and then resurrect. And so as soon as Jesus dies, they start thinking, how can we make everyone think that he rose from the grave? No, 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 no. The Jewish people had no concept of a resurrected Messiah. They weren't looking for that. They weren't expecting that. Because the resurrected Messiah has to die first. And they're not expecting the Messiah to get killed. He's supposed to do the killing. He's supposed to defeat all of his enemies. And so when, when Jesus talks about him dying and resurrecting, they can't even wrap their minds around it when he says those things. And this is why also he tells them that they should not tell anybody about this transfiguration when they go down. Because the concept of the Messiah was so caught up in this victorious military hero idea that if word spreads about this glorious thing that just took place around Jesus, and there's always already rumors uh, springing up around him, like everyone is going to jump on board in the wrong direction. No one is going to want to buy that this Jesus that that just happened to is going to die. He knows this. And so he begins to actually steer the conversation back as they walk down the mountain. It says in verse 11, then they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it was written to about him. So there was this assumption. They said, well, why, does it, uh, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What they're talking about was this assumption that was kind of spoken of by the Jewish people and the teachers that before God would show up, before his Messiah would come and make things right again, that Elijah, the prophet, was going to come back to the earth and prepare the way for him. And that assumption was not like a crazy assumption. It's actually based out of a prophecy in the Old Testament that we'll read in just a bit. But they have this idea of that, and so they ask, well, why did they say that? And Jesus says, well, actually, it's true. Elijah does come first, but, but he actually says, but what you need to know is he's already come. And he already appeared, and Jesus says in several other places in the gospel that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. That not, not like Elijah reincarnated, but he is the promised one who comes in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for him. He says, he already came, and guess what? That did not go well. That that was not a triumphant ministry for Elijah, for John the Baptist. He ends up uh, in prison and then beheaded. And what he's kind of cluing him into is the direction of his own ministry. And he asks him this question. So let me ask you this. Why does the Son of Man, why does the Messiah have to suffer? And they don't answer. Probably because they have no idea how to. It, it doesn't make sense to them. They don't know what to do with these things. But notice what Jesus has just done here. If you read all of this area, all of this section, like in context, what you'll see is that Jesus starts in Mark 8 by revealing that he is going to be rejected by men and suffer and die. 
And then he goes up, and his disciples get to witness the ultimate acceptance by God the Father, who calls him his own beloved son. And then as they're walking back down, Jesus reminds them that, they are going to be re- that he is going to be rejected and die. And so what he does is he takes this incredible moment of, of Jesus' glory. Mark takes it, and Jesus himself takes this incredible moment of glory, and he frames it up on two sides with these declarations of his suffering. And that's not an accident. Because when Jesus announces that he will suffer, the natural reaction for his disciples is going to go one of two ways. Either, no, you're not. That can't possibly happen to you as the Messiah. Or, you must not be the Messiah then. It's going to go one of those two directions. And what Jesus has done by having this moment of revelation where the curtain is pulled back and they get to see his glory as he truly is, what he's doing is he's speaking to both of those extremes because they believe that Jesus is not a path to suffering. It's a path to glory. And what Jesus is saying to them is, no, 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 no. Mine is a path to glory through suffering. And that the suffering I told you about right here The rejection I held right here and the rejection I'm warning you about here does not negate the glory that you just witnessed on this mountain. And the glory that you just witnessed on this mountain does not negate the fact that I will still suffer and die. Those two things are not mutually exclusive for Jesus. As a matter of fact, they go hand in hand. The glory comes through the suffering that God and his heart and his glory are revealed by Jesus' ability to go and lay his life down. This is how the Messiah will conquer. This is how the Messiah will overcome his enemies, is by laying his own life down and dying for his people. That's how he will save his people, and that is why he reigns in glory. The Bible picks this theme up and talks about it repeatedly, that Jesus' glory is seen through his coming down. But the most explicit place of this is in Philippians 2, where it says that Jesus, even though he was God in nature, that he was in the very nature of God, the same essence as God, that he did not cling to that, but that instead he lowered himself, and he became human, and he became a servant, and then he was willing to die the most humiliating, of de- or humiliating death on a cross. And after he dies on a cross, Paul says this, for this reason, because he died, Because he humiliated himself, because he suffered, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why the transfiguration happens. Because his disciples need to see in this moment that what he says about his suffering is true. And what he reveals about his glory is true at the exact same time. But there's another way to ask this question, not just why did the transfiguration happen, but why did Mark think you need to know about it? Why did he decide to write about it? And that's what we'll talk about after a quick break here. So you can gather your stuff up, you can stand, stretch your legs, whatever you want to do. We'll get back to it in a few minutes. So, I asked, uh, I asked this question at the end, or I basically I said that there are two ways to ask this question, why the transfiguration? Uh, and this can be true, actually, of any story in Scripture. Any uh, story in the Gospels or statement in Scripture is not only, uh, number one, why did it happen? 
That's always important. Why did this happen? And we tried to answer that in the last half. But the second is this. Why did the writer include it? And even actually more specifically, why here? That's even a good question to ask. Um, why of all the places that the writer could have put it in the story, why did the writer put it here? The gospel writers don't always put them in chronological order. Sometimes they group stories together to make a certain point. And so that's always a good thing to be able to ask because you know that there are a lot of things that Jesus did that Mark does not talk about. Uh, John, in his gospel, he closes it out by saying, listen, uh, Jesus did so many things. Like, if I were to try to write them all down, I don't think there'd be enough books in the world to hold all the incredible things Jesus did. But I chose these things so that you might know who he is, that you might know he's the Son of God and might believe in him and have eternal life. Okay, so the gospel writers are specifically choosing the stories that they feel like their readers to, need to know. And so why does Mark choose this one? Matthew and Luke do too. Why do they all three think you got to know this story. You got to hear this one. I think part of the answer is actually to help us see what the disciples needed to see. That in Jesus, in his story, in his life, suffering and glory go together. They're not mutually exclusive. And I think they kind of want us to see that because that's actually true for Christians. For those who follow Jesus, that Jesus, he's upfront about it. It will be hard. It will be difficult. And you may have to sacrifice, but to sacrifice and, and to go through hardship and pain uh, is not, uh, does not mean that God doesn't have his heart on you. Doesn't mean he doesn't have his eyes on you. Paul says, actually, I, I, I believe when he, when he talks about his own suffering, he says, I believe that uh, all of these afflictions that we're going through are nothing compared to the uh, eternal weight of glory that God is storing up for us. These things go together. But I think there's more than that that's actually being hinted at in this story. More that Mark wants us to see and catch. There are all these specific random details in this story. And Mark, if you know him, is not big on random details. Mark is kind of a gospel writer of action, and he gets to the point. And so when he stops to give you what seems like kind of an insignificant detail, it's worth taking note and asking, I wonder if that's there on purpose. A lot of times it is with Mark. He's probably my favorite gospel writer because he, see, he kind of almost drops these like Easter eggs in his gospel, these things that he's not going to point out directly to you, but if you'll pay attention and if you're willing to do the work, there's, there's these kind of little connections that can be made. And if you were uh, a like first century Jewish person, if you were a Jewish, Jewish person and you picked up the, the gospel of Mark and you came to this section of the gospel, there would be all these connections that you would start to make in your mind as you read this story. The first clue for you would be when it says that Jesus goes up on a mountain. Because in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, often significant things happen. Significant uh, connections to God end up happening on a mountain. And so as soon as he says that, their ears would kind of perk up a little bit. This is a place where oftentimes God is encountered. But then when you add in a glowing or shining appearance and the presence of God descending in a cloud and a voice speaking from that cloud, all of their minds, a Jewish person reading this, their mind would go to one place. All of them, they would go to Exodus 24. Because in Exodus 24, Moses takes this newly redeemed people, the people of Israel who've just been rescued out of Egypt by God, and he takes them to Mount Sinai. 
And on Mount Sinai, he is going to bring them to God, and God is going to make a covenant with his people. And this is going to be a very significant moment in their history. But in this scene, as they come to this place, you'll see several things that happen with Moses. First of all, Moses goes up a mountain. Second, God appears veiled in a cloud on that mountain. And then, after six days, you remember Mark giving us that statement in verse 2, after six days, a voice begins to speak from the cloud. And then we find out as Moses comes down the mountain later that his face is shining. Does that sound familiar to you? And as a person, if a person was familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, with the book of Exodus, as they're reading, they would begin to see all of these things. They're not random details in Jesus' figuration or transfiguration. They're not, they're not just random happenings that Mark decides to record. All of this would be pointing out that something monumental is going on with this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Mark wants his readers, who, who may not be sure what they think about Jesus yet, he wants them to start making connection and go, oh, wait a second. The last time I saw something like this happen, Something huge took place. A, a covenant between God and people, the first covenant between God and people, took place in this moment. So something big must be going on here. Moses was probably the greatest figure in all Jewish history. He is held up as like the big one, like the, the main person there. Now, Abraham, he's kind of the granddaddy. He's the forefather of them all, so he gets a lot of props. But Moses is like the founder in some ways of their faith. He's the one through whom God gives the law. He's the one through whom they get the scriptures, and he's the one who, who binds the people together in a covenant with God. He is a very, very big deal. Deuteronomy 34 says that there is no one else who had a relationship with God like Moses. Not before Moses, not after Moses. No one else got to connect with God like Moses did. And yet here is this young rabbi from Galilee looking a whole lot like Moses doing things that only Moses was said to have been able to do. Now, there is one other figure in the Old Testament who has a theophany, who has this encounter with God up on a mountain. And that other figure, you guessed it, is Elijah. That when Elijah is on the run from uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who want to take his life because he's standing up for God, and he's running away and he's trying to hide, he comes to Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, fearing for his life, God shows up and speaks to him in a still, small voice. Now, Elijah is not as important as Moses, but he was considered one of the greatest prophets of Israel. Uh, of, of their past, looked back on um, with great reverence. And the Jewish people had this special fascination with him because, as we mentioned earlier, one of the prophets foretold that he would return to Israel before the coming Messianic kingdom. And so they were looking for them. The prophet was Malachi. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He wrote after all the other ones. And these are the very last words of the last prophecy of the Old Testament Matthew 4, verses 4 through 6 says this, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike this land with a curse. So in the last words of the last prophet, Malachi, the last one alive, records these things, and he mentions these two figures from, from their past, both Moses and Elijah. 
And, and here we stand up on this mountain in this key moment, and what two figures show up? But Moses and Elijah. Don't get confused, though. Don't get confused into thinking that this is some kind of summit with these three great men of the faith, all equal in honor and significance. No, no, no. It could be easy to kind of think, oh, man, it would have been so cool, these three incredible men of faith as they're talking. It would have been so cool to sit and listen in to, to their conversation and the stories that they would be able to swap about parting the Red Sea or standing up to wicked kings and queens or Jesus and his miracles and to hear them all talking about all the things that they got to see God do. No. When these three get together, the only thing they want to talk about is Jesus. Elijah and Moses only talk about what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem in the next few months. How he's going to go and die for their sins. How he's going to go and redeem them and everyone else who will put their faith in him by his death and resurrection on a cross. And when God comes and he speaks, he says nothing about Moses and nothing about Elijah. He singles out Jesus. This, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, he says to the disciples. When the greatest figures of the faith come together, Jesus stands at the center. Jesus is the point. He's the point of the transfiguration and of everything else. That's why Mark tells about the transfiguration, to give us a clearer picture of who this Jesus is. And in it, we get this little glimpse where the, the veil is lifted, the curtain is pulled back, and we get to see Jesus in his glory, at least just a glimpse of his true glory. But it's not just that. We get to see the uniqueness of Jesus, that he is the one who stands at the center of history. He stands at the center of all God's plans, the Father's plans. He stands at the center of the Father's delight. He's the point. This is what the writer of Hebrews wants to tell his listeners who, who, who think they want to follow Jesus, but, but his listeners are starting to kind of wonder if Jesus is the best way because following Jesus is getting him beat up a lot and getting him thrown in jail. And so they're thinking about going back to the old way of just following God through like Moses and his law and following kind of the old customs and all those things. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to remind these people of who Jesus is, and he comes out of the gate strong. In Hebrews 1, the first four verses, he says this, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it leads to this question. This question for us tonight. If God says that Jesus is the point, and if Moses can see that Jesus is the point, and if Elijah, the great prophet, is able to see that Jesus is the point, and if all the scriptures can see that Jesus is the point, can you? If Jesus stands at the center of human history, does he stand at the center of your life? Or is he just sort of a convenient add-on to what you've already got going? 
You know, I've got my academic life and I've got my social life and, and hopefully I can get kind of like my, my romantic life. And, but I need like a spiritual aspect to my life too. And so I got Jesus to kind of check that box to make sure that I'm a well-rounded person that all these things are coming together. Is Jesus merely someone who helps you live with a little, a little less anxiety? Someone who comes and helps you when life is hard or stressful but generally stays out of your way. Let's you call the shots. Is Jesus someone who, who walks beside you while, while you still get to hold on to all of your favorite sins so you can have him and the sins that you want most? I just want you to know if that's the Jesus you're walking beside, you might be walking beside the wrong Jesus. Because the Jesus that is described in this story and the Jesus that is described in Scripture is not like that. The real Jesus is not your butler or your errand boy. He's the reigning king. He's the one through whom all things were created. And every atom and every mountain and every galaxy is currently held together, does not disintegrate, does not fall apart because he holds it together by his word. Moses can't say that. And Elijah can't say that. And nobody else can say that. It is only Jesus who does those things. One of the things I love about college ministry is that this is a stage of life when people are willing to explore new possibilities and new ideas. They're open to new things and even to spiritual realities. Um, many people who never put much thought into their spirituality or much thought into Jesus specifically are willing to consider him and to come and like learn about him at things like this while they're in college. And a lot of times it doesn't happen as much when you're younger, and it definitely happens less and less uh, as you get older. And so I love that. I love that people come willing to learn about Jesus, that they're willing to open their minds up to him. And the truth is, I know that there are a number of people in this room who fit in that category right now, who are come with, with a, an interest and a curiosity to maybe know a little bit more about this Jesus, to know a little bit more about his scriptures. And if that's you, I want you to know, first of all, that we are so thrilled you're here. But I am thrilled that you're here. And even if you're not entirely sure what you think of Jesus yet, and even if you're not entirely sure what you want to do, I want you to know that you are welcome here. I want this to feel like home to you. I want you to come back here time and time again. But one of the things that I've seen a lot during my college ministry years is that there are a lot of people who come and use things like this as an ability to kind of scratch this itch inside of them to, to kind of spiritually dabble in things. Uh, this itch for some sort of intellectual or philosophical kind of stimulation. And they like to come and they like to learn and they like to be curious and they like to kind of explore this spiritual side of them without ever fully committing to Jesus. And they may come to this for two, three, four years, and never actually commit to Jesus. It allows them to feel good about this part of their lives, all the while holding Jesus at arm's length. And I plead with you tonight that that would not be you. That you would not treat the Son of God as a mere intellectual exercise. 
that you would not treat the sustainer of your life and the savior of the world as a means for your own self-actualization. He is the only one who can redeem you, who can save you from an eternity of separation from the God that you were made for. The stakes are too high to treat Jesus flippantly, to talk about him like he's interesting and fascinating to you, and yet to never give your life to him. And for those who already know him, for those who've placed your faith in him, he is far too worthy to be a king that we hold with one hand while we hold our sins in the other. He's a king worth dropping everything for because he's the one who saved us. Because he's a king who humbled himself and his glory is seen in the fact that he died for you. And he rose from the grave to bring you life. So we don't get flippant with a king like that. We don't treat him as a light thing. We don't treat him as just an interesting curiosity. He is king. He is God. He is worthy of my worship and of my obedience and of my entire life. And that is what I want for us here. That we be serious about seeing this truth. Jesus is the point of all human history, of all the scriptures, of all God's plan, and he ought to be the point of your life as well. So what we're going to do here now is actually bring the band up. We're going to sing about this king. I want to give you a moment, and maybe this will be a wonderful time for you to be able to sing and reflect on the goodness of who Jesus is, and to be able to uh, bask in his glory, and to be able to celebrate him and rejoice him. But, but, but maybe this is a time where you need to get real with Jesus for a little bit. You need to own up to the fact that you've been playing games with him. And if so, then I want to encourage you to take this time and do that. And if you need to talk to somebody, you need to pull somebody aside and say, can we talk? I need to work through some of these things. If you need to go find somebody in the back and say, can we talk? Because I don't want to be flippant with the king of the universe anymore. Then use this time to do that now. Let me pray for us and we'll sing. Dear God, Father in heaven, you are worthy of all things, and so is your son, King Jesus. And I pray that in your mercy, that you would open our eyes to this truth right now, that you would do what I cannot, and that you would bring conviction to us and repentance to us and deep joy in the glory of Jesus Christ. I ask your spirit to do that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.